KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Mayor Todd Gloria discusses the state of the city. So tonight is not a time for a typical speech because these are not typical times. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll hear about the roots of San Diego's sports arena. Where we see, you know, the Target and the Dick's Sporting Goods and Home Depot and the sports arena, there were 3,500 homes and parks and, and rec centers and churches, and it was quite a thriving neighborhood. San Diego Unified says its vaccine mandate will remain on hold, and we'll hear from two actors talking about the Scottish play as a new version of Macbeth debuts on Apple TV. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria chose to avoid much of what he called happy talk in his second State of the City address last night. In a speech delivered at the downtown convention center, he spoke of seeing the same problems all San Diegans see. Cracked streets, homelessness, and what he called the city falling short of what it could be. But he says the state of the city is ready to address four of its most pressing problems, crumbling infrastructure, homelessness, rising crime rates, and a lack of housing. Joining me is Mayor Todd Gloria. Mayor, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Maureen. When it comes to the pressing problems that you spoke about in your State of the City speech, how is your proposal to fix San Diego's cracked streets different from what we've heard before? Well, I would argue it's dramatically different. My predecessor did try to prioritize streets, but he was very enamored with quick fixes on very poor, low-traveled roads. Uh, So what you saw over that administration was a lot of slurry sealing of cul-de-sacs, not the reconstruction that is necessary on so many of our major arterials. Uh, So what I laid out uh, was my initiative to boost uh, our infrastructure repairs, but focusing them on main corridors like Euclid Avenue, Claremont Mesa Boulevard, Skyline Drive, roads that many, many San Diegans travel over and where a slurry seal just isn't going to cut it. Uh, We have to get serious about the uh, extreme nature of our failing infrastructure, and I believe that we can. Another thing that is different is my proposal to uh, take a citywide approach to our infrastructure projects. Uh, Right now, what we have is a siloed system that really means that projects move at a snail's pace and that literally millions of dollars sit unspent. I'll bring in a proposal before the city council later this year to streamline that process in order to get those dollars into the community, start improving this stuff as quickly as possible. How does equity factor into your uh, infrastructure proposals? Equity is a part of most of our decision-making here at City Hall uh, because we recognize that our existing status quo really has left some neighborhoods behind. As it pertains to roads, you know, one might think that all roads and all, all neighborhoods are the same, but that simply isn't the case. What we have in the city of San Diego are a number of unpaved roads. Unfortunately, they're concentrated in districts like four, eight, nine, which really calls out for this equity lens on our infrastructure spending. 
My Sexy Streets initiative, which is 54 additional miles of road repair, are concentrated in those communities to make sure that they get the quality road repairs that have long been put off and help us to become a bit more equitable when it comes to the built environment in all of our neighborhoods. One of the infrastructure repairs you spoke about concerned upgrading the city's stormwater system to prevent flooding, and you admitted that it's not a sexy topic, but it also may be the topic of a new proposed tax this year. Will that proposed tax be on the November ballot? It's unclear at this point if that will be the case. Uh, We do know that there are citizens that are mobilizing to try and tackle this particular issue, and I would be extremely supportive of that, but that's independent and separate from anything going on here at City Hall. My focus has been on making sure that we're setting the stage for success should we try to tackle uh, the need to finance this. And Maureen, what that means is much like I was mentioning a moment ago, ensuring that we can actually execute upon the projects that we need to do. We have to eliminate bureaucracy, red tape, streamline the process, make sure that we're staffed appropriately so that we can adequately explain to people why new revenue may be necessary. In the case of stormwater, it's pretty evident that's the case. As I mentioned last night, we have not adjusted our stormwater fee in a quarter of a century. And that means that the seasonal flooding that you see in communities like Mission Valley and their degradating effects that they have on our beaches and our waterways are pretty significant. Homelessness is one of San Diego's most visible problems. And in your speech last night, you said you've heard widely different solutions from advocates and residents. What have you been hearing? Well, what you have are really two extreme sets of voices. One group of folks that want to criminalize homelessness and another group of folks that want us to do nothing and seem to be okay with people living on the sidewalk. Uh, Neither of those points of view are correct. We have to be laser focused on the solutions that actually uh, can get people off the streets. And that's permanent supportive housing, that's expanding our existing shelter network, and it's working to make sure that the most vulnerable and the most infirmed on our streets uh, are assisted. Right now, in many ways, our hands are tied by our state's conservatorship laws, and we should do everything we can to change that. Yeah, talk to us about this idea to renew and update conservatorship laws to address, I guess, chronic homelessness. Is that right? Well, chronic homelessness amongst the extremely mentally ill who are not capable of helping themselves. It's a its a subset, a small subset of our overall population, but they're typically the folks that disturb San Diegans the most. Your listeners see them all the time, right? These are people standing on street corners screaming at the top of their lungs at no one in particular. Folks walking around and who are clearly infirmed. Uh, people who are lying on our streets, and I see this sadly almost every day in our city, of people who have open wounds and other serious conditions, and yet when our outreach workers approach these individuals, they decline assistance. Now, some choose to say that they're choosing to be homeless. That's far from true. But what they are is so infirm to the point that they can't help themselves. And because our threshold for intervening in these situations is so high, it means that when we contact those individuals, once they tell us, no, there's nothing more that we can do. That's wrong. That is not compassionate. That is not humane. And that has to change. Most of our homeless uh, can be assisted through existing services and programs and shelters, uh, but we're talking about a, a subset of folks who are extremely vulnerable to life on the streets, and we can't leave them out there much longer. Now, you mentioned in the State of the City Address that violent crime is up in San Diego, as it is in most cities around the nation, and you took a strong stance against taking any resources away from the police department. How does that stance conform with efforts toward police reform and equity? 
I reject the sort of binary choice of you have to do one or you do the other, but you can't do both. We're a big city and we're going to act accordingly and we will balance the needs of having uh, robust and appropriately funded law enforcement with the accountability and transparency that San Diegans are expecting and deserve. So, you know, the data doesn't lie, right? We are seeing increases in crime uh, across the board, 65% increase in hate crimes. It's absolutely unacceptable. And that's why we have to make sure that public safety is properly resourced. But at the same time, the city council needs to implement uh, the voter approved uh, citizens commission on police practices. And we need to pass a privacy ordinance that would make sure that as we deploy technologies that help us to identify and arrest criminals, that we protect uh, the civil liberties of innocent San Diegans. And when will we see the city's independent commission on police practices get up and running? Maureen, I fully funded this commission in the current city budget. We are simply waiting for the city council to enact the implementing ordinance. As soon as they take that vote, I will sign it and we will get to work. We cannot wait any longer for the implementation of this. San Diegans deserve to know that the folks who are sworn to protect and serve uh, will be held accountable if they violate that oath. I am prepared to sign that the moment the council approves it. The fourth big topic in your State of the City speech was housing, and you said that you will want to see San Diego officially opt into the state housing measure, Senate Bill 10. What would that do? Well, Senate Bill 10 would make it significantly easier to build apartment homes near transit. Uh, This is a voluntary program that was passed by the state of California. Cities can choose to opt into it, and I would like our city to do so. Uh, That will be a vote of the city council probably later this year, and I'm hopeful that they'll do it. As we made massive public investments in things like extending the trolley up to the university city area, we need to make sure that we make all that we can out of that massive investment. And that means needing to put homes closer to those. You know, there is a lot to break down in what you said last night about housing proposals from funding to updated community plans around the city. But what struck me is when we hear about affordable housing projects, they're usually focused on low-income residents, and rightly so. But you made a point of to focus on creating housing for San Diego's middle class. Why is that? Because that's where the most need is. You know, if you have a million bucks, Maureen, you can find a place to live in San Diego without a lot of difficulty. Interestingly, because we have aggressive, progressive policies like inclusionary housing and an affordable housing trust fund, we do build a significant number of low-income housing units. Not enough, but we do build them. Where we see little to no building is in the middle, housing that is priced for working in middle-class San Diegans. And that tells me that we need to implement strategies and solutions to try and juice up that part of the market. And that's what my Homes for All of Us housing package is intended to do. Um, And you're Listeners are experiencing themselves. They likely have a good paying job, but they can't afford most of the new housing that is built and they don't qualify for any of the low income housing uh, that we have to offer. And so that missing middle, as it's often referred to, has to get filled in if we want to have a functional housing economy here in San Diego. And that's why our initiatives are focused on that part of the market. We can't be a great city if we don't have a thriving middle class. And that starts with providing homes for those people. What might be one strategy to create housing for the middle class in San Diego? 
So what it means is that, you know, incentivizing developers to focus their products in that part of the market, providing density bonuses and things of that nature to attract their attention. We've used that successfully for low-income housing. We need to do it for middle-income housing. I think another area of potential innovation is that making sure as we tackle our infrastructure challenges uh, that we consider housing. So for example, many of our neighborhoods um, have outdated and undersized uh, branch libraries. The city is extremely interested in rebuilding and expanding those facilities. And often we can probably accommodate some housing on top of those facilities. And when you take the land acquisition costs out of the deal, Maureen, the rents are able to come down and we can provide that dividend, if you will, to working and middle-class people. Think about the opportunity for the librarian who works there to be able to live in the community that he or she serves. So that's the kind of opportunities, that's the kind of innovation we have to bring to this space. And if we're successful in doing so, we'll be a city where more working people can see themselves uh, being able to live, being able to see a future for themselves here. I think that's really important for our long-term success. Mayor Gloria, as you begin your second year as mayor, is this job what you thought it would be? I've had a lot of preparation, but I think to the extent that there was a piece of this was unexpected, it's really around the pandemic. Obviously, I knew during the course of the campaign that if I was successful, I'd have to help lead the city through the pandemic. But the fact of the matter is, this has gone on longer than most of us expected, and it consumes a lot of time, a lot of resources, uh, a lot of attention. I look forward to the day that we can put this behind us responsibly uh, and that we can turn all of our time and attention to the issues that I outlined last night in the State of the City Address. I think that that's really important for us to be able to move forward and sort of embrace the big city energy that I talked about, uh, really embracing our size, the scope and the scale of what we are as one of the greatest cities in this country, I would dare say, in the world. Mayor Todd Gloria, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Maureen. The sports arena and the surrounding Midway District are in the midst of being reimagined. The city is currently negotiating with five companies bidding to lease and redevelop the 48 acres. Some ideas proposed include adding affordable housing, office space, more retail, hotels, and additional sports facilities. During Mayor Todd Gloria's State of the City address, he also mentioned addressing the housing crisis by building new affordable housing on that land. With a new future in the works for the area, Voice of San Diego's Scott Lewis looked into the history, and he joins me now to talk about what the Midway District used to be like in the 1940s. Scott, welcome. Thank you for having me. So what made you want to look into the area's past? You know, we were talking on our own podcast, and I asked our fellow uh, host if he knew how the city had come to own so much of the land in that area. And neither of us knew. And that changed my life for the next uh, about three weeks. I, I became obsessed with the history. And it's rather um, uncomfortable, frankly. Tell us about the previous neighborhood in the Midway District area. What was in the frontier neighborhood? Well, you have to remember that the San Diego River was never as tame as it is now. It, it flowed all over that area in that valley. Finally, it was tamed um, and, and that channel was built and that land was this sort of dusty plains. And uh, in the 1940s, 39, 40, 41 or so, there was just a massive housing crisis in San Diego. Unlike anything even we can look at now, there were people just living in streets and in camps all over the city because there were so many jobs here. But uh, in a familiar story, there weren't many homes for them to live in. And so the federal government, seeing uh, potential war on the horizon and 
uh, a need for housing, finally intervened and built the Linda Vista neighborhood up on the Kearney Mesa Plateau and uh, also demanded and, and intervened and decided to build what was called the Frontier Neighborhood on that sports arena midway land. And uh, there was uh, just a tremendous pushback uh, against it from local uh, residents in the Point Loma area. And it, it came to define itself where we see, you know, the Target and the Dick's Sporting Goods and Home Depot and the sports arena. There were 3,500 uh, homes and parks and, and rec centers and churches. And it was quite a thriving neighborhood, frankly. So how did it go from being the frontier you described to the Midway District it is today? Well, like I said, one of the things, so the Linda Vista neighborhood had gone up at the same time and the Frontier neighborhood gone up, but there was a tremendous pushback, like I said, from neighborhoods in Point Loma. And frankly, it was racist. Uh, the Point Loma uh, development had been a restricted neighborhood where people of color, non-Caucasians were simply not allowed for many uh, years, decades as it was built up. And they very clearly did not want the new neighborhood to connect because uh, it would be an integrated neighborhood. It, as a federal government project, it did become an integrated neighborhood. There were people of color there. And um, Point Loma fought, the Plumosa Park residents in particular, fought to keep the neighborhood separate. And the federal government agreed to uh, uh, what ended up being about a thousand foot no man's land, as they called it then, between the Point Loma uh, established neighborhoods and the new one. And over the next two decades, the neighborhood developed a reputation as a, quote, slum that the city needed to get rid of as soon as possible. Uh, eventually, the city took control of the land, uh, evicted the residents that were remaining there in the 60s, 62, finally, uh, and cast about looking for some sort of Disneyland or SeaWorld to put on the area and ended up with a sports arena. So in many ways, the sports arena is a, uh, a landmark to the city's successful effort to resegregate that area. And you said Linda Vista is another neighborhood in San Diego that is similar to what the frontier neighborhood was like. What made these two communities alike? Well, Linda Vista was built before that, uh, but it was very similar. The churches, the schools, the, the type of uh, homes built. The difference was Eleanor Roosevelt came out to dedicate the shopping center. You might remember Skate World over there. That's, a, that's the old rec center from that housing development that was built there. The difference, I think, is that the tenants in Linda Vista were able to argue that they should be allowed to take control of those homes after the federal government kind of left. And they did. And a lot of the buildings, churches and, and homes from the time still remain in Linda Vista, unlike Midway, where the city took control and, and evicted them. So you might remember there was a school in, in Midway called Barnard that lasted for decades after Frontier was abolished. Uh, as a magnet school, but the school district sold that off a few years ago. But there were two other schools in uh, the Midway area that, that were part of this frontier development, this neighborhood that were abolished. You know, I think both Linda Vista and Frontier suffered from not being very well connected to the neighborhoods around them. And Linda Vista was able to overcome that in some ways, but it remains a, a more diverse area than some of its north of I-8 neighborhoods around it. Um, but Frontier was was completely abolished, and it's hard not to look at the the history of racism and and restrictions uh, that kind of led to that, and along with that, the the concern about it being a slum, and 
Uh, it's just a really uncomfortable history. What was the most shocking thing you discovered when you looked into the history of the Midway uh, sports arena area? I think just seeing firsthand the racism that was uh, openly a part of the development of Point Loma. Um, you know, Caucasians will only be allowed to purchase these lots going into the future, you can be assured. Uh, I think that's still hard to just see and, and very um, disturbing to just keep looking at. But I think the second thing is that, you know, Midway's a mess. It's, uh, it's congested. It's just a very unsightly as far as all the shopping malls and the congestion and parking lots, endless parking lots. And I, I guess I had assumed for so long that that was just a, you know, accident of the way that Western United States had developed after the automobile. But I think what was shocking was to know that there was a coherent neighborhood there with residents, like uh, almost the exact same number of residents that the city envisions somehow, some way being able to put there now, that there was that before. And the city not only didn't support it, but uh, worked so hard to abolish it and create what's there now. So, you know, it, it was just it, that that was shocking that that anyone would prefer what there, what's there now uh, to the coherent, diverse and, you know, well laid out in a way community. What do you make of the plans for its future? Well, there's basically three big things going on. The, the Midway Pacific Highway Community Plan was updated three years ago to uh, envision a more coherent neighborhood. Uh, the city allowed the leases on its land around the sports arena, the, everything from the Phil's Barbecue to the sports arena parking lot to the uh, Dixieland Lumber. Those leases have been are ready to be renewed in a, in a longer term way. And then they did the removal of the height limit on buildings there so that they could support uh, uh, the kind of construction of three to 4,000 homes that they envision. I think that that has now been challenged by people and, and successfully so uh, by people who don't want to see the housing developed there. And I think, um, you know, the echoes of the past of housing being opposed in the region are, are still being heard in a way. And I think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very hard for the city to make good on its vision for the, for the region, especially as it keeps stumbling with those kinds of experiences and with that kind of opposition. Uh, and I, I'm not sure that we'll see a, a, a much of a difference in the next two decades there, but, uh, but the city's determined and, and a lot of people are determined to see that happen. And, and we'll see now as, as it considers uh, going back to the ballot for the height limit removal and uh, some of the bids that have come for that land that the city owns. But the city only owns part of the land now. And, and um, you know, that area where the target is will always be commercial and no residential allowed. So that kind of thing is, is probably going to stay. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego, Scott Lewis. Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you again. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The city of Chula Vista has become known for its aggressive use of drones and other police surveillance technology. Yet city leaders insist they're using these tools without jeopardizing the privacy of law-abiding citizens. 
However, KPBS's Amitha Sharma reports that Chula Vista is giving a private corporation wide control over any data on people collected by its police surveillance systems. Chula Vista officials bill the police department's new real-time operations center as a state-of-the-art public safety hub. Privacy advocates say it's a Trojan horse. In late 2020, with no public debate and no competitive bidding, the Chula Vista City Council voted unanimously to approve a contract with Motorola Solutions that, among other things, allows the company to use, copy, analyze, publish, and offer subscription services to any data that passes through its real-time operations center. Those data include live social media feeds, information picked up by the agency's automated license plate readers, and video captured by its drones sent out to 911 calls. We're talking about a real-time, perpetual history of our lives, our most intimate moments, where we go, who we spend times with, how we socialize. This is seeing who goes to church on Sunday and who goes to Friday prayers at a mosque. This is something that goes far beyond George Orwell's worst nightmares. Albert Fox Kahn is executive director of the New York-based Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. This is really just chilling. It feels like handing over Californians' information wholesale to these surveillance vendors and a real dereliction of duty. Chula Vista city leaders refused to comment on the contract, but in November, Mayor Mary Salas told KPBS, quote, there's always a concern at City Hall about trampling on the privacy rights of residents with new technology and that council members and staff are, quote, ever watchful of it. On our staff, we have excellent people that really have dedicated their lives to this and that really are real students of this, and I have faith in their expertise. Advocates are especially alarmed that the city also granted Motorola Solutions permission to sell any data run through its real-time operations center as long as it's anonymized. I have never seen a contract this bad. Brian Hofer is executive director of the Oakland-based privacy advocacy group Secure Justice. If the Chula Vista City Council or administration or procurement folks reviewed this with the lens of protecting their residents' privacy and civil liberties, they completely failed. Motorola did not respond to an interview request. San Diego ACLU lawyer Mitra Ibadullahi contends the overall contract so lopsidedly favors Motorola Solutions that she wonders whether Chula Vista city officials understood the stakes or were simply outfoxed by the company's high-priced lawyers. Either they lack the expertise to appropriately analyze and understand these contractual terms, in which case they shouldn't be entering into these contracts at all, or they understand these terms and they're happily trading away the privacy rights of Chula Vista residents. Foxconn says that privacy loss is Motorola Solutions' financial windfall. The data broker industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that is trying to take everything we do, both in digital spaces and physical spaces and turn it into a product for the highest bidder. 
He and other privacy advocates want lawmakers to bar cities like Chula Vista from cutting deals with companies giving them access to data on their residents. This is something that police departments should be protecting us from, not something that they should be fueling. From privacy security to national security, tomorrow we'll tell you how Chula Vista police almost exclusively buy their drones from a Chinese company suspected of spying for the Chinese government. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, welcome. It's good to be here. Now, Motorola Solutions contracted to provide software to Chula Vista's security hub. So how does Motorola Solutions get access to data on Chula Vista residents? Well, the data that the Chula Vista Police Department picks up through its automated license plate readers, through its drones, has to pass through its real-time operations center now because they've centralized all their information in one place. So when they call it up, when they're trying to solve a crime, it has to pass through this real-time operations center. Motorola provides the software for this real-time operations center, and through that software, they can access the data. So why would the city of Chula Vista agree to these terms? That's a good question, Maureen. We were interested in knowing the answer to that question. We reached out to Mary Salas. She's the mayor of Chula Vista. We reached out to the city council. They approved the contract. Um, We also reached out to the city manager, Maria Kachadurian, and the city attorney, Glenn Guggins. They both signed the contract. I wanted to ask the city council and the mayor if they read the contract and if So, did they understand the contract? And if they did, why did they think that the terms of this contract with Motorola served the privacy interests of the residents that they represent? But sadly, no one talked to me. No one felt like it was their duty to explain their decision to the public. Now, where and how could Motorola sell any of this data of things like drone footage or license plate images? Well, experts tell me that there is a very large, a very profitable data broker market runs in the multi-billions to trillions. And this is where companies look at people's habits and movements and they try to figure out what kinds of goods and services they might be interested in. And that data is what helps them figure that out. So while the the money value of this data is not clear to people like you and me, for these companies who are interested in buying data derived from the surveillance technology, it really helps them figure out what people might be interested in buying. And do we know if Motorola is actually using or selling any of the data picked up in Chula Vista? Well, that's just it, Maureen. We don't know exactly, and we really have no way of knowing. And that's one of the most troubling aspects of this type of surveillance technology and its consequences, according to privacy advocates. People's privacy rights are being violated. They just don't know exactly how or how often. Why did Chula Vista want to create this real-time operations center in the first place? What Chula Vista police officials say, it takes all the information they need to respond to calls to 
to solve crimes and it puts all that information in one place, in one system, so that whatever police need to call up as an emergency situation or a crime is unfolding, they can call up right there. Drone footage, jail records, everything. As uh, Chula Vista Police Captain Eric Thunberg told me last month, he said it basically gives us everything at our fingertips. And what do we know about the effectiveness of this kind of surveillance in actually preventing crime? Well, I have to tell you, privacy advocates have really come out strongly against some of this technology. Many of them say, look, we're all for drones being used to rescue people and fight fires, but they worry about routinely sending them out to 911 calls because of the footage that they can pick up on the way to the scene, on the way back, and even at the scene. Um, if you if you look through these cameras, you can you can make out people's faces, you can make out their backyards, you can see a lot that may not be part of the emergency situation. And advocates also question the effectiveness of automated license plate readers. There was a study that was done by the Independent Institute in Oakland, and it looked over 16 years of data from the Piedmont Police Department, and that study found no evidence that these license plate readers give law enforcement investigative leads or or stop vehicle theft. And in Chula Vista, that police department's own statistics show a hit rate of less than 1% with vehicles tied to suspected crimes through these ALPRs, these license plate readers. Now you have more coming up tomorrow about Chula Vista law enforcement and its drones. Can you give us a preview? I can. The Chula Vista Police Department is using drones produced by a Chinese company that the Pentagon says poses potential threats to national security. That's tomorrow here on Midday Edition. And I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. A legal setback for San Diego Unified School District and their effort to mandate vaccines for students 16 and up. A San Diego County judge ruled the district doesn't have the authority to impose the mandate. This comes as cases surge. Now school officials are saying it's no longer a question of if students get COVID, but when. Joining us to discuss the recent development is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome. Thank you. Uh, Why did the judge feel imposing a mandate was beyond San Diego Unified's authority? Well, it's a matter of the law, and the law simply states that the state is responsible for setting all mandates for vaccinations. So under that law, uh, technically, San Diego Unified's uh, mandate is illegal, and that's the reason the judge said it could not stand. So now why didn't the state legislature then approve the mandate? Well, it is not as simple as just asking. Uh, It is a government body uh, of legislatures who are uh, really have differing opinions on the subject. So it's a matter of finding a sponsorship in the in the legislature uh, for legislation that would allow this to go forward. And that is in process. Uh, And the district is appealing. But of course, all of that takes time. And meanwhile, the covid cases continue to rise. In your reporting, you spoke with board trustee Richard Barrera. What's his reaction to this news? He is a very trusted source, and I've interviewed him several times. I don't think I've ever heard him speak so bluntly 
about this subject. Uh, he is frustrated, uh, and he is really encouraging parents and families and staff members and students to get vaccinated uh, in order to help the district try to stop the spread. Is there a sense of if the district will ever be able to impose a vaccine mandate for students 16 and up? Yes, I do believe that eventually it will happen. But as I said, the appeals process takes time. They had hoped to have this up and running by the start of the spring semester, which is January 24th. Barrera said, uh, quite frankly, that is not going to happen in the next two weeks. And so it's really a waiting game. When can they get the appeal and then ask the judge for a stay so that they can go ahead with the mandate? Uh, Since the risk of contracting COVID is higher at this point, uh, what's the plan if students get infected? Plain and simple, if your student is positive, they cannot come to school. That has not changed. And that's the reason the district is saying, although they can't force parents and students to get vaccinated, they strongly encourage it because if you are positive, you cannot be in the classroom. Uh, Do students who want to stay out of the classroom still have the option to attend remotely? Well, it is certainly an option, but really it's not optional. If you are testing positive and cannot be in the classroom, then the virtual academy is uh, the opportunity for learning. Unfortunately, like all the other districts, they're short-staffed, and uh, they really are struggling to get that virtual academy to a point where it can serve all the students who need it. In your piece, Barrera said, you know, it's no longer a question of if students get COVID, but when. Uh, What kind of a position do you think this puts parents in? Well, it's a simple uh, equation. If you are not vaccinated, what he was saying is you will get COVID. It is that contagious in this moment. And so parents really are encouraged to get vaccinated themselves and make sure that their children are protected. So since imposing a mandate at this point is out, what's plan B? What is What does the continuing effort uh, to push vaccinations look like? Testing, testing, and testing, and also getting vaccinated. That's really the only solution and the only option that the district has left. They did send out the home test kits uh, over the holiday break. They're hoping that the state will provide more of those. And so they are encouraging uh, parents and students to get tested. And they are testing at school locations at least once a week. So that is there and available and a solution. But at the end of the day, it's about getting vaccinated. As Barrera told us, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth starts streaming tomorrow on Apple TV+. KPBS film critic Beth Alcamando placed the film on her top 10 for 2021. She had an opportunity to speak with two of the actors to gain insight into what kind of a director Joel Cohen is and how he brought this play to the screen. Macbeth is Shakespeare's swiftest play. It moves with ferocious energy as it follows the downfall of the title character. 
In Joel Cohen's film adaptation, the character is presented as a victim of both fate and his own bad choices. Supernatural forces lay tempting promises before him, but he chooses to take the actions that force him down an increasingly narrow path. One of the interesting supporting characters in the play is Ross, who's listed in the stage directions as a Scottish nobleman. He's a character who can simply be the bringer of news, both good and ill, as he's described in the play. Or he can be given more agency, depending on the staging. Cohen and actor Alex Hassel collaborated to make this Ross a fascinating player in Macbeth's tragedy. I have to say, when I first read the script, I was extremely excited by the idea of this different Ross knowing the play very well, but I had no idea what Joel was intending, what Ross's agenda was, what his sort of function in the story was. It wasn't something that one could immediately kind of understand. And I think indeed that's what we wanted to keep. We wanted the audience to not fully fathom what his agenda is, what he's trying to do to people, you know, what he wants. I think that's part of the pleasure of the character. But it meant that I I had the great honour and pleasure of collaborating with Joel, trying to work out what this this version of Ross was and why what he does to the story and the sort of tension of the story. It was a, a yeah, a great, great gift. And I think for people who know the play and watching the film, it creates a whole different sort of vein of tension through the film in a way that kind of pays off brilliantly, especially when the latter part of the play often is harder to keep tense because it kind of jumps between loads of different scenes. And I think this is a useful sort of tool in that respect as well. So what kind of director is Joel Cohen? Uh, He seems a bit of a mystery from us on the outside, but um, how does he work with you? And and what kind of specific direction did he give you about playing Ross? Well, we rehearsed for three weeks, which was an amazing and unusual situation. And I'd say necessary in a film uh, in which you're using this language so he he's very very open and very very collaborative he is obviously has is immensely intelligent and has a a very clear vision and really understands how to use the tools of cinema to tell a story of course but is very collaborative in terms of how you you create the character together we would mainly chat and then we'd do some scenes and then we'd both think about it and then he'd say you know he could be he, he doesn't have to not be sexy. And I was like, oh, wow, really? I mean, I never, I've not been in any way thinking that I was doing okay, okay, okay. And then, uh, you know, we'd do it a bit more and he'd say, have you considered that he could have these qualities? It, it would often be about qualities that he should have. But also we talk quite dramaturgically in terms of this is the new information that the audience receive here. So in the next scene, what if we just, completely do the opposite of that or or seem as if none of that was the case so that you're constantly meeting the character newly and therefore can't kind of quite get a grasp on who he is and what his agenda is so I thought much more from a director's point of view than I did from a sort of subjective character's point of view. In this scene Ross brings tragic news to another nobleman Macduff played by Corey Hawkins. Your castle is surprised your wife and babes savagely slaughtered to relate the manner. We're on the quarry of this murdered deer to add the death of you. My children, too. Wife, children, servants, all that could be found. My wife, killed, too. I have said, be comforted. 
Let's make us medicines of our great revenge to cure this deadly grief. He has no children. All my pretty ones. Did you say all? Oh, okay. All. What all my pretty chickens and their dam in one fell swoop? Disputing like a man. I shall do so. But I must also feel it as a man. As with Hassel, Hawkins has performed Shakespeare on stage and on film before. He was surprised by his first discussions about the role with Cohen. One of our very first conversations, I remember him saying, you probably know more about this than I do. And of course, it's very sort of disarming. And and it just shows the humility because, of course, I don't know more about it than he does. But just the fact that um, he trusted you know, me to come in there and do what my version of Macduff was. And he, he trusted that I could come in there and, 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 and hold my weight with this incredible cast. And, and so I appreciate the faith that he sort of put, that he put in, in me and just the collaboration throughout the entire process was just, it's incredible. It's a dream. And what kind of director is Joel? I think he's he's just incredibly collaborative. He's a visionary in that Joel, I remember the very first lookbook that he he gave us in terms of what the film would would look like, what it was, you know, just just early, early, you know, imaginings of, of what it would ultimately the vision would ultimately be. And now that it's done, looking back on it, it looks I, I'm literally, I was going back through it not too long ago and I was like, not much has changed here. Like it really actually is, is uh, as true to, to look, but that's, that's just a sign of, again, a great director, a great collaborator. The fact that Joel is taking the opportunity to dive into Shakespeare, to dive into this world is in and of itself incredible. He doesn't have to do that. You know, he, he, he has, a legacy. He has, you know, opportunities to, he can write, you know, his own. so, so the choices that he made to actually go this where this route are the marks of someone who's continuing to take risks and continuing to, to sort of expand. And those are the kind of people that you want to work with, you know, cause that's, it's going to be, you know, it's going to, you're going to get something at the end of it and it's a risk you're taking. And thankfully, you know, we got something great out of this one. And what did you particularly like about playing Macduff? I love that he is a good man. He's a good man. And sometimes it's really thrilling to, to play the villain, you know, because they're fun, you know, they, they, they're good characters. But there was something just appealing about the opportunity to go inside the mind of, of, of this man and, and, and what his sense of duty was, his morality, his virtue it's, it's a lot and and it takes a lot to to be that kind of person you sort of wish I, I sort of wish that I had those qualities we try to emulate those qualities you know but thankfully I get to play them on screen well thank you very much and thank you for your time thank you that was Beth Accomando speaking with actors Corey Hawkins and Alex Hassel. The Tragedy of Macbeth starts streaming tomorrow on Apple TV+. You can hear the full interviews next week on Beth's Cinema Junkie podcast.
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.